This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. Welcome back or welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Cameron McCormick. By passion and practice, we at Altus are driven to decode the difference makers that high performers possess, the ways and means they use to earn their edge, to separate from the pack, to leave mediocrity in their rearview mirror and travel a pathway towards mastery. Be it through nature or nurture or more likely a mixture of both, the journey to uncover these things is the journey we're on. Now in today's episode, we're joined by some familiar identities for those in tune with the world of golf, or if you're a previous listener to the podcast, you've heard from these two before. But for those listeners new to either this podcast or the world of golf, some background. You're about to hear from Eddie Pepperell, who notched his first European Tour of Victory this year at the Qatar Masters, and is coming off a two-week stretch where he finished second at the Scottish Open and a career-best finish in a major with his sixth place at the Open Championship. I like to think of Eddie as the people's pro. He's relatable in every possible way. He's honest, frank, and thoroughly entertaining. In addition, you're going to hear from one of Eddie's good friends and fellow European Tour professional, Laurie Cantor who himself is putting together some of his best performances in his professional career over the last 18 months. This is the second of a two-part episode, so if you haven't listened to the first, you should go back and check it out. It's episode four, and it was recorded during the Italian Open, where Corey was supporting some of his clients playing in the event. It's the middle of the event over dinner and some red wine, so please excuse the normal restaurant ambiance and the traffic from outside the restaurant in the beautiful town of Brescia, just outside the city of Milan. The theme of discussion is self-reflection, And while on surface, this is a theme may lack sizzle, what we've come to understand and therefore place high importance on in working with our clients is this is a foundational edge earning action. You see, self-reflection is the antidote to confirmation bias. What is confirmation bias? It's the tendency to interpret evidence of the thoughts and events we experience as supporting of our existing beliefs, theories, and behaviors. It serves to strengthen this cycle of belief and behavior, most often perpetuating patterns that leave us falling short of the standard of life or performance we could otherwise have. Said another way, do what you've always done, be who you've always been. So to break out of that well-worn groove, listen closely to Corey, Eddie, and Laurie in this episode of the Earn Your Edge podcast. All right, so time to switch gears just a little bit. We've gone over all the heavy stuff with Eddie. Let's pull Lori in here and we'll do kind of a roundup style of questions that either both of you can pipe in on, uh, one or the other can answer. But this should be a, a little bit lighter fare as we leverage the collective wisdom of both Lori Cantor and Eddie Pepperell. And we'll start with yet another one of those reflection type questions. In the last 365 days on the European tour, what is one thing that you have learned that has improved your performance the most? The one thing that has moved the needle the most in comparison to previous years? I must have said it at some point in the last 30 minutes. <laughs> problem is, problem is I've forgotten what I've said. I would say my answer to that would be the importance to understanding what you do well when in your best rounds of golf. So like there's something Cameron spoke to me about like just before Q school last year he was on um, Golf Stat Lab going through um, all the all my results and he, he noticed like clear correlation with my putting inside six feet so simple <laughs> but when I was holding those putts they almost always led 
to good rounds and the rounds where my strokes game putting dropped off a bit of a cliff there there was like a snowball effect and it affected kind of my whole game yeah. almost to the effect where you know you'd miss a five footer you'd miss a six footer then you start missing fairways it doesn't they shouldn't correlate but they were for, for me so um, I'd say it's it's like perhaps I've begun to understand a bit more my DNA of playing well yeah it comes up again it's that self-awareness and reflection right yeah and there's been a like one thing I've noticed in the last six months is I don't feel like I've I've had like very I don't think I've played very well <laughs> necessarily but I guess I'm in like one of the more consistent periods of being a pro for sure I am actually definitely like in terms of my about the highest score I've shot 73 and I'd obviously had a good low one this week but my scores are quite grouped and I think like I think I have really embraced trying to understand the DNA of why I play well and then I, I have done a lot of that um, there's like yeah I mean in terms of you know moving that to the next level and reproducing good scores and good scores again and again turning a 72 or 71 into a 69 which is what you have to do to certainly win here I'd have to do other stuff undoubtedly but I feel like that's something really understanding the fundamentals of what what makes a good round for you and certainly for me there was like such a clear correlation with that short range putting and and it it almost affected me through the bag I would add the stats for me were a bit of a revelation because I've never done stats but just seeing some of the data come back at the end of last year I had a feeling of what I was doing well and then I saw the numbers and I mean I led the tour last year approach play and I felt I was in my irons well and then I saw the numbers and I was like it gave me so much confidence but it also helped me understand like Laurie just said completely my DNA with the way I play the game so you know it, it, it gives me so much you know, I now know what I have to really do to go out there and shoot a good score or not shoot a bad score and, and that's so powerful and there's no mystery no for sure let's discuss failure and adversity for a second what you guys are doing is really, really difficult. Professional golf is hard, and we see time and time again that no one is exempt from periods where they struggle. It's inevitable you know, when you're pursuing something as inherently difficult as uh, performing at the top of your sport for any sustained period of time, you're going to run into a, a period of time that, uh, that you struggle. And whenever we have clients going through some kind of adversity, struggling, it's sometimes nice to provide them some type of encouragement by telling a story of someone else going th that you know had gone through something similar that was able to come out the other side and be better off for going through that. So I'd ask you guys to help us build that library of stories that we can then pass on to others. Can you think of any occasion, anything throughout your entire career where you failed, but looking back at it right now, you think to yourself, you know, as horrible as that time was, I never would have gotten to where I am right now if I hadn't encountered it and here was less I learned for it. You know, a, a bit heavy to discuss failure when I said that this would be lighter fare, but I'm interested if either of you have a story like that that you could share. My first thought on that whole adversity question is you do hear that all the time. Like that, that idea is espoused from everyone like Michael Jordan about how many shots he's missed in his career and all that stuff. I've always found that really hard to hear. Like, I've always found that hard to hear when someone's telling me that you have to go through this and because that for me that removes the whole process of the adversity that you're dealing with so if someone if someone says to you oh everyone goes through this then it you almost feel normal about feeling like you're not succeeding and then I think that takes away a lot of people's actual first response to it which is I'm angry about that I want to do something about that I want to change that like so 
and I think those performers they might reflect on that but they didn't have people at the time telling them oh adversity is fine you know you've got to fail I think like it's sometimes when I hear that like I find people have sugarcoated what so you're saying that's like revisionist history then yeah I think if something bad happens to you you should they should cause certain emotions and you shouldn't necessarily feel bad about feeling that and I, like so that would be the way I'd start that yeah, I could agree more with that, and I think that's like, um, I would call that like, that's, you know, you could call that like soft adversity, you know, like what I went through in 2016, the soft adversity, but someone losing their parents in a car crash at four is like as hard adversity, but how often do we see those people actually succeed, because their adversity is so, so sour and so hard and dark, that it forces this reaction, it's like, Bruce Wayne, do you know what I mean? I mean, it's like Bruce Wayne becomes Batman, not because, exactly, not because his parents were, you know, this lovely lawyer and accountant who had a lovely house in Manhattan, it's because they were shot dead by some Looney Tune. So he becomes Batman and he becomes this great, you know, superhero and obviously it's a fictional story, but it's really not, it's based on lots of real stories that, that have happened to people. So I agree with Laurie there, I'm much more, you know, hard when it comes to, hard nosed when it comes to adversity. I mean, it's, it's just a simple fact that right now you're not good enough. What are you going to do about it? And don't berate yourself you're not good enough. Don't feel sorry for yourself that you're not good enough. People out there that care for you will be feeling for you and will be having empathy towards you. But, you know, just 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 sort it out. And if you don't sort it out, well, fine. You're not going to make it. And if you do, well, you know, good for you. I mean, I've had pity, plenty of pity parties in my life. Like, so this is like, that's a realisation I have now that when I feel, when I have big failures, I, I want to frame failure totally on my own and I want to frame success totally on my own and so anytime you have other people weighing in on what success and failure is I think people fall into a lot of trouble and I think that's why a lot of people struggle with transition from amateur to professional because there's a feeling that you know Laurie Cantor or Eddie Pepperell that they were a great amateur and they 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 got selected for the Walker Cup or they got selected for the St Andrews Trophy but there's 12 people selected for that and that's 12 people that year in an amateur team but there is this expectation among like your club members or the people in your county that you should be immediately getting a card on the European Tour and winning because that's what you should be doing like in success but th there is so much more to it and so I mean that for me was something that I struggled with a lot because it's an expectation that others put on you and that's where I, I think I was lucky that you know I had like a I, I think I had a family who kind of like they did understand that there's a longer game to things and uh, I got that opportunity and I, but I do think some people perhaps turn pro and like it's their family will stifle that they'll put a whole set of circumstances that they think success is or that they think failure is and and actually that isn't that isn't the real world it's not um so like i mean yeah you want to get you want to get out of that pond so let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners under armor it's under armor's mission to make all athletes better through passion design and the relentless pursuit of innovation and that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. Moving on to our, our next question here. Eddie Laurie's already answered this one, so I'll let you take a shot at it. If you had to win next week to save the world, this is our doomsday hypothetical. 
the world's dependent on you winning. What does your preparation look like leading into it? We're all going to die unless you win. I'm just looking at this bottle of Montefalco Sagrantino 2009. This would come to the first tee with me. By the time I get to the green, I don't know what you're drinking. Uh, Vivalde uh, beer. I mean, that would maybe make it to the second tee. I mean, obviously, somewhat of a loaded question. But, I mean, if I'm going to take it seriously, then I would have to just, you know, look at my game. I would make sure that I'm going out onto that first tee with an amazing six iron swing. You know, because I've got a three wood that can get me in mid or mid iron range, so I've got to be dynamite with a six iron, and I've basically just not got a putt like a twat. Um, you know, and it's, it's that simple for me. On the golf front, that's the plan, and uh, try not to buckle under the, the weight of that. You know, predicament too much, really. All right, I love it. Next question: You've got someone else who wants to be the next Eddie Pepperell or the next Laurie Cantor. They're aspiring to be a European Tour player. You have to give them advice. They have to get better, but only by subtraction. So they have to take something away from what they do to get better. Yeah. So they have to improve by subtraction. So you, you can't add to it. You can't say, hey, you need to start doing this. You say, you know what? You're, what you're doing right here, that's worthless. Stop doing that. And this is interesting because when people have this microphone in front of them, a lot of the answers that we hear are, okay, don't worry about technique. But now we've spent, you know, an hour talking about the importance of form and how that's been important for you and how that, you know, creates all these other things. So this should be an interesting answer. You have to get someone better by subtraction. What do you take away? So I would say to that guy or girl, you know, all those little one percent, one percentile things that you're working on, we'll add them all up and they might equate to, I don't know, 20 to 40 percent and throw them in the fucking bin. And you know, that first 60 percent, this is the core of golf. Just get really good at that. You're better off being awesome at that first 60 percent than average at that first 60 percent, but great at the other 40. Because that, well, actually it's bigger than 60 percent. You know, the game of golf and, and history has proven this is so simple. The top, you know, the first 80, 90 percent, there is definitely this infatuation with, you know, the one percent. I'll do these little tiny little things you know i don't know what it's called you know what it's right these type of marginal gains you know and that's fine once you've got the first 80 percent in place but in i can tell you i don't even think the world's top 10 have got that first 80 percent in place it's everything that first 80 percent is 100 percent it's 100 percent of the game forget the marginal gain stuff just get rid oh but what is it in the game right well it's just your basics it's your putting you know and okay you could you could you could nail all these things down within that you know you could subdivide or whatever but you know it's a simple it's just the simple parts of the game you know just get just learn to hit the ball straighter learn to strike the ball better learn to putt a bit better learn to get a little better on the short game stuff you know you don't need to go into all the details of toe down chip shots or draw chip shots or all these tiny minute shots you know I, I'm honestly not a believer in that look at Martin Keimer he got to world number one playing the most one dimensional game you could ever find on the planet you're really good at doing it one way Absolutely. Trevor Ullman won the Masters doing it, and then he changes, and look what happens. I mean, there are so many examples of that. Just nail that. Okay, so for this next question, I want to speak specifically to European Tour here, because that's what you guys know the best. Who is really good over here that shouldn't be, and what can we learn from that? And I mean, I don't mean for you to say anything bad about anyone, because if you really look at the essence of this question, it's a huge compliment. So if, if we were in America, we might say, you know, Zach Johnson, you know, he doesn't hit it that far, but look at the record that he's created for himself. What can we learn from that? Jim Furyk, uh, you know, he's got a goofy action that not everyone thinks is the most beautiful thing in the world, but you look at this incredible record of achievements that he has piled up. 
And so that's the kind of answer that we're looking for. Who has performed at a really, really high level that you know you wouldn't think has any business doing it? And what can the rest of us learn that they have clearly figured out that if we piece together, we could we could all improve and get better? I think the thing that Europeans have in common is that they, they, they actually look really good and they are really good and they're really efficient. They swing the club great. They're built well. The one guy that to me doesn't is Tyrrell Hatton. He's the guy who came straight to my mind there, Tyrrell Hatton. And that's not, I mean, he's, you know, slightly podgy, you know, doesn't practice. I mean, works with his dad, has done his whole life. Somewhat of a questionable temperament and attitude relative to what we would consider to be, you know, ideal. And yet he's world class. He's nearly won in the in the States. He's won big events over here. He's going to be a Ryder Cup player. He's going to have a great career. And he does nothing that you would prescribe to your students or, or if I had a student, you know, and yet he's the guy. So to me, Tyrrell Hatton's the guy that stands out there. And so then the, the question is, why? Why? Because in my mind, you know, he's just, he's been on this little journey for six, seven years. He's got a little bit better every year. Uh, he's kept things dead simple with his dad. His technique is dead simple. They work on the same stuff and they just identify when he gets slightly off or whatever. Streaky par, but he's cool with that when he's got a putter in one piece. You know, I mean, it's pretty simple. Like, he hasn't complicated the game when the rest of us have. And because of that, he's good. And I mean, it's to me, he's the only example that I could give that stands out because all the other Europeans that are up there actually they look great. They swing the club great. And it's like, why aren't you winning more? You know, so, but he is the one that stands out to me as not like that. That's, that's hard. Yeah. I mean, Tyrrell was an interesting one. We, we like, he was in our amateur squad, so his face didn't fit. And uh, in terms of getting selected by England, I guess what he's got is like a little bit what you're talking about in the putting skills in terms of the things you can't see. So he's so tenacious and he's got, it's like an incredible amount of, vigor in his performance <laughs> bite yeah so, so it's when Eddie was talking earlier about professionals that you know they'll fight to finish 60 if I genuinely think if he was playing in a nothing event like you know and I, I feel like he's conditioned where he just won't take he, he will if he shoots 73 it's going to be he's going to have tried his nuts off he might have lost his head and made a stupid mistake but he will have like he'll, he'll want to play well and uh I think like, that's just a hugely underrated skill. Yeah, like, so like, underrated is our next question, actually. What's one thing that you've done that you have found incredibly useful that other people are just underrating and ignoring? So one thing that you can attribute to your success that other people just aren't paying enough attention to? Red wine. <laughs> red, red wine. I mean, well, I think uh, I'm just going to go down that route. I mean, maybe not red wine, but what that... There are too many guys out here, I think, who who can't turn off. You know, they won't drink alcohol. They won't switch off at night. And that is as detrimental, if not more detrimental, than the guy who drinks too much alcohol or who relaxes too much at night because there's no switch off and there's so much pressure. I mean, it is, you know, it is stressful and pressure, you know, pressure some out here. So you need to have the ability to, to switch off in some way. So, okay, it's not the modern thing that's done. And obviously, you know, we're supposed to be modern athletes and, of course guys at the top are but i also think they have an ability to surely switch off in some way shape or form there are too many guys that don't i mean probably another better answer i could give but i mean i think that's a, that's an old-fashioned quality that's gone out of favor because we've just associated it with alcohol or smoking but actually what it's not it's symptomatic of a greater thing which is the ability to switch off which is so important on this in this like you know line of work really. I'd mediate Eddie's answer there by saying that like 
like Eddie, Eddie does that. Eddie does that well. But one thing I think good players do is they understand the importance of like investing in parts of their game, and that's something that I didn't really grasp that well until I like got on tour and, and saw it, and saw the investment players will put in in terms of like having a coach there, their caddy, like uh, some some players don't hit balls unless their coach is there. Like that, they, so they, there's an investment to their golf that it goes far higher and far beyond what I thought they would do, and they're so disciplined within that that they're willing to not practice or you, you know. So it's like when there's definitely, I think that links a little bit to switching off because I think when you become like a top professional, like a, one of the top guys this week, their time is more limited than my time. And my time, I think, is more limited, a lot more limited than when I was an amateur in terms of, like, because I'm travelling more and there's more stuff to do. I'm older. There's generally more responsibilities that you have. So you have to maximise that time when you do practice and you do work. So my answer to that would be the investment that top players put in themselves. Is, I don't think people realise. <laughs> I don't think people have a grasp of that, of, like, the... They might not do it all the time, and we don't, you know, golfers aren't like swimmers, and they're not like where it's you have to put so much time in, sweat equity, like you guys say. You have to put a huge amount of time in, but it's so much more important how you put that in and the quality of that time. That then, there's, I, I sort of mediate these switching off with when yeah. you are yeah. switching on, it needs to be on. Yeah, and, and I would just say from like the progression of when you're say 10 years old to say 30 years old and you go from being this mad keen junior to say where we are. So if you start at when you're 10 and you really understand nothing, so you could put that at 0% but your work ethic is 100%. Well, as you get older, that work ethic in my mind should go from 100% gradually creeping towards 0% as you reach 40. But the smartness and the understanding goes from 0% to 100% as you reach 40. So I played with him and as these first three days. I mean, I can. I mean, he might do some practice. Of course, he does. But I bet he doesn't do nothing like he used to do. But the secret is, and the reason he's better now than he was 20 years ago, is because he understands his game of golf. And so that's the, you know, you reach, you know, you have that kind of X pattern. One that goes from 100% to 0%, and it goes from 0 to 100%. And that's what I think is unique with golf. And that's a beautiful part of the game. And when I look at great players in the world, do Jordan Speeds. I don't see guys Rory. I've never seen Rory on a practice ground at any tournament I've ever been to. I've never seen Rory hit balls other than in a warm-up. And yet he's always winning. And yet the guys I see out there for six hours on a Wednesday, they're often missing the cut. And it's like, well, that doesn't make any sense until you come to realise that it comes down to a, a mental skill and an understanding that he has over his game. And that's way more powerful, infinitely more powerful. So, you know, that's, that's you have to, you know, that's built in with golf, which I think is great. Okay, how about anything that's overrated? Is there anything that you think that people, even guys out here, are spending too much time doing that they could cut out? You know, similar to the subtraction question, but I guess rather than point that towards an aspiring player, more of the top-rated players, you know, players that are competing either, you know, developmental or high-level tour that you feel, you guys, between the two of you, feel like is probably overrated and not worth the effort. You could argue, and I think for some guys, you could argue gym time. I mean, you know, there are guys who've benefited from it, but there are guys who haven't. I mean, uh, you know, that's the one part of the game that is modern that people are definitely having to come to understand with golf. You can't just say, 
I'm going to go and work my socks off in the gym for five years and I'll be better at golf because you ain't going to be the case. You know, it isn't, it isn't even going to be the case that you swing the club faster necessarily. So, and then how you use that speed. So to me, I mean, there are guys who have used, like Rory, I think he's used the gym exceptionally well. However, he still had to come to terms with more injuries and he's definitely more injury prone now than he was seven, eight years ago. There's this constant weighing up. I think the only thing I can answer that would be the gym and that side of things, which is modern to the game. I'd say um, not necessarily by players themselves, but the way that golf's portrayed, I think, overly portrayed as a mental game. So you hear that peddled a lot on commentary at your local golf clubs. Oh, you know, it's 99% in the head or whatever, you know, these these, these things that people like to say. And uh, golf, I think, more than almost any other sport is so a game of skill. Like, no one, no one when you're out on the golf course, no other competitor is going to come up and put you off. And if they do ever do that on a shot, they'll get shot down fairly quickly. Like, no one affects your golf ball. If you hit it in a bad light, okay, it's a bad break, but in the course of 72 holes, that's a leveller. Like, <laughs> you're going to have ebbs and flows of luck. And I can't think of another game that's so dependent on how skillful you are playing it. Now, of course, there's mental aspects within that. It's, you know, there's going to be different scenarios. In golf, for example, if, you, if you're a tennis player, then you get used to how a court looks, and there might be some more cameras there, but the court always looks the same. So. Of course, if you go out onto centre court at Wimbledon as opposed to an outside court, of course the butterflies are going to be up. Players will take time to adjust to that, but that's about as hard as it gets. And once they've done that once or twice, they'll get it. Golf is not quite the same. You know, you might there's certain holes make you feel a certain way, and I understand that's perhaps a mental part of it. But ultimately, it's the biggest test of skill of almost any sport out of there. And I think far too often it's peddled as this this idea of you know there's there's a huge there's a over emphasis on the mental aspect of golf and I, I think I don't see that. Yeah and I'm just going to absolutely babble on for a second here but I agree with that and I think there's an example you can use Tiger Woods a few years ago when he came back and he started fatting every chip and everyone's like he's got the yips. What bullshit you know he's one of the best players ever. Tiger Woods doesn't just get the yips right and we've just talked about this it starts as a technical issue Okay, and you hit a few bad chips into the grain you fat a couple and then the next time you get a shot into the grain you remember what you've just done because you're a human being and you say Fuck, I just fatted the last one. So you thin it. Right, so now you've you what started as a technical issue has become a mental issue. Right? And so then people start to say, Oh, he's got the yips. And yeah, it is a mental issue. But if you wind the clock back, it always starts as a technical issue. So the only way you can fix it is by fixing the technique. And then of course you have to rebuild that bridge. And yeah, you're gonna have to go through that uncomfortable motion where you feel that pressure and you remember that shot. But you know what, you pull the shot off and then all of a sudden you're winding the clock back and you become a great chipper again. Like it's like with Jordan Spieth and his putting. You know, recently, I mean you don't just become a bad putter. He's lost a bit of technique, he's lost some confidence. So you just rewind the clock back. It's a dead simple equation. And um there was something else I was gonna say about technique. It comes back to the technique technique but then how you improve on your technique and this is the one thing i've learned you know you see positions but what you must do is you must find a movement that creates the position you're looking for not try to achieve a position through position sake and that's what great golfers do you know they have a move they have a they have an order of chain of events that creates these positions they don't just put these positions in place and all of a sudden they get an order that's not the way things work so you know, slightly off topic, but I just wanted to get that in. No, that's good because that that kind of goes on to our next question, and th this is my last question. And at this point, we've kind of poked around these topics a little bit. It could be a little bit redundant. We've been all around it, right? If we look at the one percent, the very best in the world, if you're going to identify, and you guys are the one percent, but let's call it the one percent of the one percent. 
So we're talking maybe the top 10 in the world. As you guys look to that and say, all right, that's where I'm heading. That's where I want to be is, is in the top 10 in the world. What are one or two attributes that you've identified in those guys that if you were trying to define or explain their success, uh, you may, maybe it's not necessarily something that you're aspiring to, but it's something that you've identified that's a common thread in the best players that you guys have been around and not necessarily hard skills. So let's stay away from you know, driving, chipping, putting, clearly they're talented and they have, you know, very refined skills all around. What are some, I guess, edge earning qualities and actions that you feel like the very best in the world, the 1% of the 1% are taking? Well, but then I think that opens up, you know, you've got so much difference. So if you compare Justin Rose to Roy McIlroy, I mean, you know, you've probably got two ends of the spectrum there. You've got Justin, the way he goes about being a world-class performer is entirely different, I suspect, to Rory. And that's not to say that they're not both very smart because they are and they understand their own characters and personalities but you know they'd be way different in the way they would approach their own games and yeah they're both world class or they do likewise with Dustin like Dustin Johnson I mean he's more in the Rory category you'd probably say in terms of this natural talent if you like although I don't like that phrase but you know this seemed the skill that they seem to have whereas there are other guys who have to seem to work a bit harder for it on the outside even though we all know everyone works hard for what they've got but I'm curious as one of the top players in the universe. Is there ever a time where you look at that top 1% of the 1% and feel like there is something you're envious of as far as the skills that we're discussing? I feel like the top 10 players in the world at any given point, they've, they've, there's like definitely two ways of doing it in terms of, I feel like some of them are very, basically have almost facilitated their whole path to it so that they have something that's a bit different so people talk about Rory and like you know that he's people used to watch him when he was 15 16 and shoot 61 at Portrush and he had something different and like Jordan Spieth people talk about how people will play around a golf with him and he'll notice something about the golf course that other people don't notice it's a very golf IQ is very high and and then I think there's other people like Justin Rose who are perhaps um, he's very disciplined in how he does things so, and I think if you took, if you gave Justin Rose a lot of the, the, the things that make Rory flow, Justin Rose in the long run would struggle because that would almost, he'd almost perceive that as a lack of control in terms of how he's doing things. So he feels like he's losing control. Whereas I think, and I think if you, if you flip down his head and you said to Rory, you need to be disciplined to an extent like Justin Rose, Rory would struggle. Because, and I think Rory in the past has had those those stints with um, techniques or coaches, the way he's tried to do things in a certain order, and ultimately he's, he's kind of left it alone. And Yeah, so that's perfect. That circles back to the theme that has continued to come up in our conversation here, which is that self-awareness. What are you really good at? What makes you tick? You've got to know what that is uh, and stick with it and get really good at it. So. Uh, that circling back is a good way to end our conversation. Lori and Eddie, you guys are legends. Thank you so much for taking some time out here in the middle of a tournament week to spend a little bit of time and chat with us. So good luck the rest of the way here, guys. And we'll, uh, we'll see you down the road. Thanks. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. 